Well, here we are once again in Romans chapter 8 today. And this moment, or this morning, we're going to sit in on a trial. The scene is the courtroom of divine justice, and a charge is against a person. They're condemned because of sin. The person is guilty of sin, and the sentence is death. Hear ye, hear ye, the courtroom of divine justice is now in session. Bring in the prisoner. You are hereby charged that on the faithful day you did break the law and thereby have incurred the charge of sin. You have been found guilty, and the requirement of the law is that you're sentenced to death. Does the defense have any further evidence? Well, there's someone here who stands surety, who will take responsibility for this person's guilt. And you are Jesus. And you will pay sin's debt for this person. You will take his or her place. And what assurance does this court have that this perpetrator will live a changed life and not um, continue in sin? You're promising that you will provide a helper for this one? Could we have the name of the, he- of the helper? Church clerk, or I should say court clerk. Record the name. The Holy Spirit. Then by the power vested in this divine court, the verdict is there is now no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. You are free to go. Now this is a simple illustration of what happens at the time a non-believer becomes a new person in Christ. In the gloomy halls of the human court, it falls with a fearful sound on the ears of a guilty criminal. To condemn a murderer to life imprisonment, to give grounds or reason for convicting or censoring someone because of his act which has condemned him. Well, in the Bible, it is to express an unfavorable or adverse judgment, to indicate strong disapproval of, to censure, to pronounce to be guilty, to sentence to punishment. And in that court of divine justice, we all would appear. Before that bar, each one must be arraigned. The charge originally pronounced against sin on that fateful day when God said to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Born under the tremendous sentence of sin and death, we enter this world in a lost condition, separate from God, unable to to escape this curse of sin. We read the curse that we are under, the law of God given to everyone. We read it, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And so we spend our days like a tale that is told. The psalmist in uh, chapter 90 verse 9 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. One day death comes, and with that the sentence of eternal condemnation. We know the pronouncement. He that believeth not is condemned already. But wait, can it be? Is there hope? Can there be deliverance? Is there a deliverer? Can our sentence be quashed? Can we be acquitted? Now if you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and verse uh, page 113 actually of your study book, and hopefully by now you've read through the study book for this week's chapter. It gave some really, really inform- good information. on on the flesh and the spirit. 
And this study guide is, is really something for you to do at home so that when you come here, what we say gives you a, a deeper understanding of it. So let's read it together. And I'd like you to read with me in unison, verses 1 to 17 from the ESV. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's just pray before we get into this. Father, we just thank you for these words of life for what you've taught us so far in this book. Just continue with us now and give us listening ears and, and listening hearts, Lord, and help me to speak slowly and clearly and, and, and help me to speak in a way that we'll all understand what these words are saying. We ask this in your dear name. Amen. Jesus said in John 5 and 24, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. 
The freedom of the believer is just what it's declared to be, entire exemption from condemnation. What process could there be that could satisfy such a holy God? How could God reverse that sentence that was delivered in the garden? How can that happen, that God will pardon sin and justify the sinner? It must be a process that glorifies him. It would be impossible for even the most perfect man or an angel to take our place. Another imperfect sinner, no matter how good they lived, could be a good sacrifice because God cannot look upon sin. So Galatians 4 and 4 gives us the answer. It says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. As fully God and fully human, what was Christ's mission on earth? Paul reports that he came to redeem those under the law. And the word translated as redeem is the same word used to buy a slave out of bondage. That's why Jesus came, to buy those who uh, believe in him out of bondage to the requirements of the law. We could never keep that law perfectly. We were literally slaves to our own sinfulness with no hope of escape. So God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son, and Jesus presents himself to the Father as the church's substitute, and the Father seeing in Jesus the only one who could be our surety, who could take on the sin of the world, who could completely obey and suffer, who could supply that merit of that sacrifice. And when you and I come to trust in Jesus as the one who alone could save us, God looks us on us as righteous, and he acquits us, so to speak, and in reality says, you're not under condemnation. And as we saw last week, Jackie took us through the last part of chapter 7, where Paul was speaking in, as it were, two voices. And how could anyone who is a Christian say such things as, I am carnal, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin? And how could a non-Christian say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being? and wretched man that I am. <laughs> and yet Paul is saying that. We saw that he wasn't talking out of both sides of his mouth, but he was explaining life in this present world for a believer, that tension, that battle against sin. We live in the already, but not yet. <laughs> Why do these Romans need to hear there is no condemnation? Well, he was writing to the believers in the Church of Rome. They had already heard about justification in chapter three, Verse 21. So why at this time is he talking this way? Well, they needed reassurance. They needed reassurance about being released from the law of sin and death. They felt the power of this indwelling sin. They also saw death among themselves, and, and Paul needed to reaffirm to them that their security was in Christ. And that's actually the main theme of this chapter, the security of the believer in Christ as a child of God. So now he's going to talk about their new life in Christ and their freedom from condemnation. And in verses 1 to 4, he'll talk about this and then proceed to what life in the Spirit looks like with their new minds and their future new bodies. And then he'll talk in verses 12 to 17 of the glorious future of their inheritance. So let's just look at verse 1. Paul begins by saying, There is therefore... Therefore, and he's summing up what the therefore is about. He has written in chapter 3, 
chapter 4 and chapter 5, about salvation through the death and resurrection of Christ. He says, because we have been justified by faith in conjunction with our union with Christ, we escape the sentence of spiritual death that our sins justly earned. Notice the word um, now. It's present tense, isn't it? It's immediate, now. We're not going to have to come back some future time and try to get exonerated from guilt. It's done. Salvation is already ours if we are in Christ, as opposed to being in Adam. And in verse 2, he explains why we don't need any longer to worry about condemnation. Because he says, through the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you're free from the law of sin and death. So the essential contrast which Paul paints is between the weakness of the law and the power of the spirit. God views us as justified. So we are going to see here two laws. We saw them last week. The two laws are powers. That's another name for them, a power that influences or controls us. In chapter 7, verse 21, Paul had talked about two laws in his members, the law of the spirit of life, which is really another name for the gospel, and the other law, which is referred to the law of sin and death. Now, God's holy law that he gave could never be kept perfectly. Paul said it produced death in him, but that through Christ he had been freed from the law. And after he had established in chapter 7 that Christians are free from the mastery of sin and the law, he's now going to explain why there's no condemnation. Because the spirit of life, that's another name for the gospel of Jesus Christ, has set us free, free from that other law. The spirit of life, the gospel, did what the law could not do. The law couldn't deliver man. It just made him a law keeper. But the gospel makes him a believer. And so in Romans 5, we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that was a positive statement back in chapter 5. But now here's the negative counterpart in chapter 8. It begins, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul will strike out immediately by saying that our not being condemned is because God condemned our sin in Christ. In other words, and this is so important, our justification to with, together with the corresponding truth of no condemnation is securely grounded in what God did for us in and through Jesus. It's because we've been freed or liberated that there is no condemnation. So in verse 3, we see a very important word. Verse 3, let's just look at that. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness. Let's just stop right there at that word likeness. Christ came not in sinful flesh, but he did come in the flesh. So let's look at that word likeness. He was real, a real human, but he was sinless. If he'd been born of Joseph, his sacrifice would have been of no importance because he would have come into the world the same way we all got here. But he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, and that is one of the very important parts of our statement of faith. Because if he was not sinless, his sacrifice would have been of no avail. To quote one commentator, although his humanity was real, he was sinless. He came for sin as a sacrifice. He came to condemn sin, to deal with it. He condemned sin in the flesh. 
He won the victory over sin in the very realm where it seemed to rule unchallenged. And so when you looked around and, and uh, just see what he did while he was here, who could raise the dead? We couldn't, but he really won the victory over everything where sin seemed to rule. That is why Paul added that word, likeness. He did not like every other person since Adam succumbed to the tyranny of the flesh. He wasn't like every other person. He didn't sin, nor did he inherit the penalty of sin, which was death. So Paul uses the language of interchange to quote another commentator. Christ came, became what we are so that we could become what he is. By condemning sin in Christ as our sacrifice, God can now justly avoid condemning us who are in Christ, end quote. So verse four, this verse refers to the fact that the righteous requirement of God's law was fulfilled by Christ. He has done it. So the people in whom the law is fulfilled are those who live in the realm of the spirit. When God sent his son, it was not for our justification only, through freedom from condemnation, but he sent his son to make us holy. And many of you have heard the definition of holy as being set apart, set apart for God. A way to put it is this. Holy means leaving aside the possibility of being perfectly holy. It means to live a life that is set apart from the secular world. A Christian, for instance, who's living a holy life avoids and resists the temptation to sin and focuses his or her attention and energies on God and good works. Now that sounds like a works-based religion, but it's not. It's just this. God's moral law has not changed. He gave the law to show what he delights in and what he hates. And look at the phrase in verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law. Do you see it where it says it might be fulfilled in us? So, the obedience to the law is not the basis of our justification. We know Christ is our justifier. And because we are under grace, it's not the law, not keeping the law, but it's the fruit of our justification, not the ground. I'll say that again. The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us by Christ. But because we're justified, our holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw in Romans 7, we cannot keep the law because of our indwelling flesh. But Romans 8 and 4, I'll quote John Stott, our freedom from the law is not freedom to obey it. The law obedience of the people of God is so important to God that he sent his son to die for us and his spirit to live in us in order to secure it. So holiness is the fruit of grace of the father sending his son into the world and then his Holy Spirit into our hearts. So before we continue on to verse five, Paul is now going to emphasize the work of the Spirit. In the first seven chapters of Romans, his Holy Spirit is mentioned once, but in chapter eight, he mentions the Spirit almost 20 times. It's the Spirit who convicts us and frees us from sin and death, who changes our nature, gives us the ability to overcome the desires of our sin and unredeemed flesh changes us. He's the third person of the Trinity, equal in every way to God the Father and God the Son. And he's not merely an influence. I remember for years, people referred to the Holy Spirit as it. He's a person. 
not an impersonal power. His, his functions, if you read scripture, um, he functions with mind, emotion, and will. His, he loves the saints. He communicates with them. He teaches and guides and comforts and chastises them. And he can be grieved. And these are verses, if you want to look up and take a little study on, this, on the spirit, he can be quenched and lied to, tested, resisted, and blasphemed. He's called God, Lord of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, or Jehovah, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Jesus, and the Comforter, and also the Advocate. So in verses 5 to 8, Paul has said that the only people in whom the law's righteous requirement can be fulfilled are those who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's going to contrast two walks now. By flesh, he doesn't mean our bones and muscular tissue, but the whole of our humanness, our unredeemed, fallen, or maybe another way to put it is the sin-dominated self. And by the spirit, Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit, to now, who not only regenerates, but indwells the people of God. So the contrast is life in the old age in which we were hostile to God and which brings death, or the new life which brings peace. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian mind is that the Christian mind is controlled by the Holy Spirit and wants to obey God though we do not always manage to do so. There's that tension. But the non-Christian mind rejects him altogether as ruler. The fact is that our battle with sin teaches us that the new mind given by the Holy Spirit has to come first. We need to be born again before this can take place, before we can obey God, so that what you know that tells you is that there is going to be a battle while we are still in this world. I'm just going to turn to Galatians 5, and if you want to turn there, you can, and uh, read 16 to 26. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And, and he goes on, and he mentions all these, these things. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives us this beautiful description of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. He goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now he's writing to Galatians. 
So don't you think that maybe there's things going on in the Galatians church that he has to, to bring this up? In fact, it's not just the Galatians. He's talking to us. He's talking about these two walks. He's writing to the Christians at Rome. He's writing to us. You see the tension here? The flesh and the Holy Spirit are irreconcilable conflict. Paul refers to the mind in, in these verses, but we would use the word mindset. And verse 5 contrasts the two types of people. And so I want you to look at page 115 in your study. And I didn't put it up on the board. I just thought we could talk about it, and you could tell me what you came up with. In those three verses that you looked over, what do you see in that first column? The ways of life that are according to the spirit. Look at the contrast. Can you tell me some of the things about somebody whose mind is set on the spirit? Just shout out one word. Right. The minds are set on the spirit. What else do you see in those three verses? There's life. Peace, Peace right. Mm-hmm. And who's abiding in you? The Holy Spirit, right? What else do you have? Right. Righteousness of Christ. Now look at the flesh. Where's the contrast there? What do you see there? Hostility. Mm-hmm. Hostility, right. Hostile to God. Death. Death, yeah. Right, yep, cannot please God. Mm -hmm. Think about sinful things. Yes, yeah. Does not submit, when somebody has said that. Does not belong to Christ. And no resurrection. Those who set their minds on what their nature desires, their manner of life, their underlying way of thinking, their unredeemed nature, that's one part of the contrast, whereas those that set their minds on the things of the Spirit, they have been redeemed and regenerated. They've experienced the new nature. They have the Holy Spirit. And in both cases, their nature determines their mindset. The flesh on the twisted human nature, well, we want those things that appeal to our ungodly self-centeredness. And that can rear its ugly head in our lives. But then someone comes to Christ, and things change as the Holy Spirit takes up residence. Haven't you seen it? Where somebody comes, and they become a believer, and you think, boy, have they changed. There's just something different about them. You can see it. We know that's what happens, because Jesus made the promise, I'll not leave you comfortless. The Holy Spirit, the Helper, comes, and he desires the things that please God, and he loves to glorify Christ, and so that when he's living within us, that's what we want to do things start to change in the new believer's life. And so as the gospel grips him or her more and more, shaping them and drawing them and nudging them and feeding them, and sometimes more than nudging them, I can tell you that, there'll be decisions that are going to be clear as to what to do, different decisions than there were before, how to behave, how to speak. That's where the word of God comes in, how we, how we speak, and, and that can be so important. And so that's why we have the epistles, to show us how, how to live, how to speak, 
The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Do you remember the rest of that verse? For all of you who remember scripture well. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Right, I hear you good girls. <laughs> Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we read it, the Holy Spirit opens our minds to what we're reading, convicting us and showing us the truth. But if we never seek to open the word, to spend time in it, we'll only have a vague idea of what it is to walk in the Spirit. And so Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to these believers and to you and I today to remind us that we are so blessed because this work of regeneration has begun in us. We're not robots that somehow God magically pulls or yanks strings and we now sit back and wait to be yanked like a, a puppet, waiting to be convicted. He talks about setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. But it's understood that as we do that, the Spirit of God will enable us to live for God. And it's really a question of what preoccupies us, of the ambitions that drive us and the concerns which engross us, how we spend our time and energies, what we concentrate on, what we give ourselves to, and what we're exposing our minds to. Douglas Moo says that Christians who read nothing but the latest novels, watch nothing but network television, and talk to nobody but unbelievers are never going to form the mindset of the spirit. All the input comes from one direction, reflecting the value system of the flesh. And no wonder we so often think and act in fleshly ways. If we're serious about progressing in the Christian life, we must every day seek to feed our minds with spiritual food. And too easily, our quiet times can just degenerate into a routine exercise where we think, well, I gotta do my Bible work today, I gotta do my, my study. And, and the, the mind is hardly involved, it's just an automatic thing. And that ends his quote. Paul's been describing the two ways to walk in a general description. Now he's gonna change, and he's gonna apply and address the Roman believers in a very more direct way. Look at verse nine. You, he said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Now he's not going, if the spirit of God dwells in you, which we're not quite sure of. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, he's something very direct. He said, you're not in that old regime, but you are in the realm dominated by God's Holy Spirit. And then he shifts again when he says, if the spirit lives in you, well, in whom does the Spirit live? In every person who is a genuine Christian. Not to have the Spirit of Christ is not to belong to Christ at all. The New Testament teaches us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is an automatic benefit for anyone who knows Christ. And that was one of your questions that you were asked. Upon conversion, the believer is given the Holy Spirit. The scripture never teaches that at some later point, there is a bestowing of the Holy Spirit. Neither does it teach that the Holy Spirit comes in greater measure to the especially spiritual, or that we must advance uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ to a higher or deeper region ruled by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying here in verse 9 that it is not possible to be a Christian without the Spirit. This means that all Christians without exception have the Holy Spirit. So something we just need to see here in verse 9, look at the way the Spirit is described. The Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. We cannot separate the person and work of the Holy Spirit from the person and work of the Father or Jesus. 
They are triune. They are equal. To have the Holy Spirit within you is to have Christ and God dwelling in you. John 14, 15 to 27. I'm just going to turn to that. If you want to join me, you can, but that's okay. So, John 14, 15 to 27. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then we read a little further on in, in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. And so it's very interesting to see. Uh, this does not confuse the, the persons of the Trinity. Um, and John Stott clearly says this to emphasize, although the three persons of the Trinity are distinct in their personal way of being, they also share the same divine essence and they are inseparable. What the Father does, he does through the Son, and what the Son does, he does through the Spirit. Indeed, wherever each is, there are the others also. That's the end quote. When we become a believer, we're united with Christ through the Spirit. You and I will be united with Christ forever from that moment on into eternity. It's no longer just you or me. There's a new person and his presence and power in your life. Uh, as one puts it, the faith that saves leads to a faith that desires to obey. There's now the Holy Spirit. In your life, he begins to lead you to reject doing what's wrong and also to begin living in the way that God originally created you to live and the way which you will fit in with the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. But there still remains the old nature. There's indwelling sin. And as Paul has said and Jackie taught in chapter seven, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. Are we alive to, Jesus, to God? Do we thirst for God? I just looked up two of these Psalms because they're so beautiful. In Psalm 63, he said, "'Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Don't you feel this is a dry and weary land? I look at the newspaper, I listen to what's going on, what we're being fed, how we're being, or tried to be brainwashed, and I think, what a dry land. You never hear from anybody with real, true, godly wisdom. It's just a lot of people spouting their own ideas, and it seems so dry until you go to the Word of God, and that's where life is. The other psalm I love is Psalm 42, and we've sung that. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Do you long after him? Do you long for when he's coming back? For when we'll be finished with all this mess? I just sometimes think, oh, Lord, I'd like to go. But I want my grandkids to go, so I, I don't want to go until I know they're going to come too. <laughs> and, and so it is. It's a dry and a, a weary land. Well, he finishes verse 11 with the word if, if you're truly born again, if you have the spirit of God within you, 
Not only will he transform your everyday life, but God whose spirit he is, the one who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies and will do it through the spirit who lives in you. You can see right there in that verse, there's the working of the triune God. Even though the Trinity's not mentioned, so many of these verses contain Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, our bodies are not yet redeemed, but they're going to be. And so we come to the very last part of this morning's study, verse 12. Paul puts it plainly here. I'm going to go back to it. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So he puts it plainly. He says we're debtors. To who? Even though he doesn't finish the sentence, he's referring to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Instead of living according to the sinful nature, we're to go to war against sin in our lives. And again, I'm going to quote Douglas Moo. His, his sentences are so clear. He says, The attitude Paul describes is not one of token resistance but of absolute ruthlessness. We're to put to death. And see the present tense? Put to death everything that the flesh desires." End quote. Now, as I read this, I thought, boy, this sure sounds like a work-based faith, but it's not. We're already justified by God. But now with our renewed minds, there's going to be this cooperation or submission to the Holy Spirit. We're gonna want what the Spirit wants which will result in a deeper walk with God, with a more spiritual life. Paul is saying that the indwelling spirit has given us life, which he has. And we can't possibly live according to the spirit, or to the Lord's working without the Holy Spirit. <coughs> We're not in debt to anything but the Holy Spirit to live out our new God-given life and to put to death everything that would threaten it. So how to understand this? We're, we're secure in God through Christ, but we have a responsibility and there's to be a balance. And no true believer can ever um, suffer condemnation. The verdict has already been proclaimed in that divine court. It cannot be changed. We're eternally secure. The believer's once for all death to the law of sin does not free him or her from the necessity of mortifying or putting to death the sin in his members. It's necessary, and it's also possible to do so. Although no, I, I know at times you wonder, am I making any headway? Because some of these old sins just come back every now and again. Well, Paul is putting the responsibility on our shoulder. But at the same time, he prefaces it with the phrase, by the Spirit. Do you see that? I'm just going to check. Or if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit. So we need to remember that we don't do this on our own. It's through the Spirit. So if you're battling with sin and battling with what to do that pleases God, you're being led by the Spirit because if you didn't care, the Spirit's not in you. If you don't really care. But if you're concerned about pleasing God, the Spirit is within you. Jesus didn't redeem us just to set us free to wander on our own. He came to redeem us so that we could be adopted into his family. Through faith in Christ, we not only escape condemnation and the fact that we need to follow the works of the law with no hope, but we also find a home and a family as children of God. We find forgiveness from sin 
and belonging with God. You know, last week Alyssa was here. She was here because Catherine and um, Heather went over to stay with Noah and Luke so she could come here. And I looked at that and I thought, there's grace manifesting itself. Because Heather and Catherine have a burden right now, but here they're going to relieve another sister's burden. And it was good to see her. But I thought, what a wonderful example of God's grace working in among the sons and daughters of God. So last week we heard Paul say, oh, wretched man that I am. And today we hear the contrast because he's saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And we can call God Abba, Father. And so I want you now, we've got about five minutes, turn to page 115. And on page 115, just among yourselves, there's a, a, a place that you can talk about the path to holiness. The question says, is it a daily process or a one-time victory? I think it's an important thing to discuss because sometimes we can get ourselves down. We think we need to be perfect and we really need to be, you know, really holy. So turn to that and you've got five minutes just to talk among yourselves. Sorry I took so much time, but there's so much to cover. Okay. Oh, I hope you can see that I did. 